Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank my brand new sponsor, Audible, for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You can visit audible.com slash Peter or text Peter to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. Quite a day in the stock market today. Dow Jones closed down over 600 points, 633.87 to be exact. I forget where the lows were. I know we were down over 700, I think, at the worst of it. That is down about 2% or just over 2%. Losses on the NASDAQ were a bit heavier. There, the NASDAQ was down 3% or just over 3%. Russell 2000 down a little bit below 2%. And the S&P 500 down a little over 2.5%. In fact, this was the fifth consecutive day that the Dow was down. That is the longest losing streak for the industrials since February of 2020. So last year, you know, leading up to the complete collapse uh, prior to, uh, you know, the March lows. I think this was the worst day for the Dow since October 28th. Now the market was down all day but the losses accelerated during and after the Jerome Powell press conference where basically he delivered the most dovish press conference I've ever heard. And it should have been a positive for the market given how the market responds uh, to easy monetary policy. But the fact that despite this incredible dovish Powell The market not only didn't recover what it had lost, but built on those losses should be very problematic for the bulls. And I want to table that discussion for a while because I'm going to get to it on the back half of the podcast. I really want to start with some of the other internals that were going on. And particularly, I want to build on what I discussed on Monday's podcast 
with respect to these most heavily shorted stocks where GameStop is really the poster stock for uh, the mania. It's made the biggest move, I guess, from the lows and it's getting the most discussion. It has the highest profile, but it's not just this one stock. You could take a look at a list of the 10 or 20 most heavily shorted stocks and these stocks are all taking off. In fact, even though the market was clobbered today with heavy losses, those most shorted names still had huge gains. In particular, GameStop was up another 130% today or 135%. It closed at $347.50. Incredible. And the rally really started last night in response to a number of high-profile tweets about the stock. And these are tweets that were coming from Cameron Winklevoss, Chimath Palapatia, and Elon Musk. All of these guys tweeting and just basically throwing fuel on the fire of uh, what was going on in these stocks. And I want to talk about, in particular, what some of these guys were saying. First of all, Chamath Palapatia. So this guy actually tweeted out yesterday that he had gone long GameStop call options. So he let everybody know that he had already bought. So he didn't tell people, hey, I'm thinking about buying. He bought first. And once he established his long position, he let his 900,000 plus Twitter followers know that he was now long GameStop call options, knowing full well the effect that this was going to have on the price. Because after all, you tweet this stuff out, right? And this is going to go through the chat rooms and everybody in Robin Hood is going to just take this. You know, you're like waving a flag at a bull, a red flag. And so he gets long and then he lets everybody know, right? Blue Horseshoe loves, you know, GameStop, right? So he puts that word out and the stock goes way up. And again, also that same night is when you have the tweets from Elon Musk. Now, Elon Musk didn't really say anything. In fact, his whole tweet was one word, game stunk. So, you know, he spelled it wrong. So who the hell knows what that means? But it doesn't even matter. This guy is just laughing hysterically because he knows all he has to do is tweet something out and all sorts of people are just going to buy the stock regardless of what he actually meant by that game stunk comment on Twitter because he has so many followers, right? So earlier this morning, first of all, the hedge fund, Melvin Capital, which was one of the biggest shorts in GameStop, CNBC announced that they had been informed by GameStop that they had completely covered their short position. Now, when the announcement came out, GameStop was trading above 300. And as a result of finding out that this big short had already covered, meaning that they're not going to buy anymore because they've already bought back everything they were short. The stock immediately tanked and began trading below 200. I saw it trading in the 180s, but it didn't matter. The stock rallied back anyway and made new highs. The stock got up to 380, which was significantly higher than the high that it hit prior to the news coming out that the big short had covered. I think the high pre that announcement was 330. So after selling off from that, it rose. And remember, it rose in the face of this massive sell-off in the stock market. And it wasn't just GameStop that was going up. 
it was most of these heavily shorted stocks, although I did notice a few of them surrendered their gains and closed negative on the day. So maybe this is a harbinger that we're reaching the end of the line on these where some of them are dying from exhaustion. But you still have, you know, the biggest ones uh, that are attracting the buying. But then when they interviewed on CNBC, Shamoff, he came on and he immediately disclosed that he had already closed out his position in GameStop puts on the open. So in other words, the guy has a massive Twitter following. He loads up on options, then lets his followers know that he owns them and tweets out positive statements about the stock. And then because he has helped push the stock way up, because all the people are now following him into GameStop, and now without telling anybody anything, without putting out a tweet, he just quietly sells all of his options and makes a big profit and then announces to everybody after he's closed out his position that he's already gone. Now, I mean, if I did something like that, I mean, the SEC would be taking me away in handcuffs, right? I mean, that's clearly a pump and dump. You can't do stuff like that. Now, uh, Chamath did announce that he was going to take all of his profits and donate them to charity, which, you know, fine, that's great. I mean, you know, I'm all for charity. And so that's certainly, you know, a plus that he's not actually profiting from this personally because he's giving the money to charity, although he will get a donation, right? He will have a charitable donation, I guess. And so maybe reduces taxes somewhat. So I guess he will have a profit in, in that respect. But, you know, when you pump and dump, it's against the law. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do with the proceeds from your criminal pump and dump. It's still illegal. Now, maybe he didn't realize that. I mean, but what Chamath should have done if he really just wanted to, you know, punt on the mania, he should have just kept quiet, not said anything about it, bought the call options and sold them and then told us about how smart he was after the fact. But to publicly let everybody know that he's bought them knowing that it's going to influence the price and then immediately selling into the buying that your own tweet generated and not telling anybody about it. I mean, what he could have done is said, hey, you know those call options that I let you know that I bought? I'm about to sell them. So I just want to let you know before I get out that I'm going to sell. I mean, that would be the proper way to do it rather than to sell first and then inform all the people later. Uh, But as it turned out, there was so much buying in this thing that it probably didn't even matter because everybody had a chance to get out at an even higher price than he did. That's how insane this market is. And you know, what's really adding insult to injury is that while the most heavily shorted stocks are soaring, the stocks that everybody owns, right? The stocks that all the hedge funds are crowded into, their big longs, the favorite uh, long stocks, those things are getting killed. And in fact, it makes sense Because what's happening is some of these hedge funds that are getting margin calls on their short positions, they don't want to be squeezed out like Melvin. They want to hold on to their short positions, but they need to meet the margin calls. So in order to do it, they have to sell some of the stocks that they're long. And so that's putting selling pressure on the longs. But, you know, a lot of people think that this whole thing is being masterminded by a bunch of small fries on uh, Robinhood, trying to get their revenge on the hedge funds, right? They want to get back at them for the uh, 
bailouts in 2008. And so they, there's an organized group of merry men on Robin Hood that are exacting their revenge. And all these little guys are getting rich at the expense of these big hedge funds. I really doubt that is the story. I mean, that is the story that Chamath was peddling on CNBC, but I just don't buy it. I mean, yeah, that would be great. I mean, that would make a nice movie if that was really happening. What my feeling is, is there probably are some other big funds that are on you know, the other side of this trade. I think they're utilizing the chat rooms and all the small guys to help pump up the stocks that they want to dump. And there are probably some of these small investors who are going to make money off of this, who have made money off of this. But I think the vast majority of the small investors are going to get killed. I think they're buying these stocks now. They're still buying these stocks. They're buying these stocks at these inflated prices, and they're going to be left holding the bag. So I think it's just going to be some institutional investors that make money at the expense of other institutional investors. But I think the retail guys, far more of those are going to get killed. They're going to be left holding the bag. And in fact, if you look at some of the selling pressure that was developing on the longs earlier in the day, even before the market was getting killed. To me, what it looked like is some of the other hedge funds that were anticipating the margin calls on the short positions, knowing that other hedge funds would have to sell their longs to meet these margin calls, they front ran those trades and either sold out those longs if they already owned them or shorted them knowing that these stocks would be going down. And in fact, by pushing these stocks lower, now the hedge funds that own them that have margin calls have to sell even more shares at the lower price to raise the money they need to meet the margin calls on what they're short. So I think there's some sophisticated uh, investors involved that are helping to orchestrate this, that are utilizing uh, the chat rooms. And, And all this is stock manipulation. I mean, I have no idea if uh, the SEC is ever going to get involved. I'm not a big fan of the SEC and all these rules, but, you know, I guess there's a double standard out there. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, we shouldn't care about these rules because for a a change, the little guy is making money, right? That, oh, people are now mad because finally the little guy is getting rich. Look, there are some little guys who are getting rich, but believe me, The vast majority of the little guys are going to be a lot smaller after they finish losing all this money on these BS stocks that they've been buying. They're not going to outsmart the big guys. You know, it's like going to a poker table in Vegas and sitting at a card table with a bunch of professional card players and thinking you're going to walk away a winner. You're not, right? I mean, they may let you win a few hands, but only because they know they're going to take all your money before you leave. They're professionals for a reason. Right? <laughs> you're not. You're on vacation. You're you're getting drunk. They're there to take your money. Wall Street is the same thing. Even if you make a little bit, you're not going to keep it. This is not, you know, turning the tables on the big guys. And nobody should be applauding what is going on. But, you know, I like to look at the lessons that we should learn here and look at some of the other people who are jumping on this bandwagon. You know, one of the tweets that came out last night, pro GameStop, was from Cameron Rinklevoss, right? One of the Rinklevoss twins, Cameron and Tyler. These guys are the big Bitcoin billionaires, right? And so Cameron tweets out, hey, I'm thinking of buying GameStop. 
Uh, any thoughts, question mark, right? Immediately, right, to fuel the fire because he's thinking about buying. Why would any intelligent person think about buying it? I mean, it's so overvalued, right? I mean, clearly, I mean, what do they do? They sell hard copy games in malls. I mean, they've got a dying business. I mean, why do so many people, why are so many sophisticated hedge funds short this stock? Because it's got a great business model? Because it's got a great future? Because it's earning all this money? No, as I said on Monday, it's because they're going bankrupt. And they're probably still going to go bankrupt. Although, obviously, if they can sell stock at these prices, I guess they can pay off any debt that they have and have a big cash hoard. Uh, but again, this would be directing capital to a very inefficient user of capital, thanks to uh, this market manipulation. But why would Cameron Winklevoss be thinking about buying it? I mean, the only reason he would think about buying it is because he thinks the price is going to go up because other fools will think about buying it too at an even higher price. And then, of course, it seems like that's a natural because that describes Bitcoin. I mean, all these big Bitcoin guys, well, maybe not all of them, but certainly a lot of the people who are pumping Bitcoin are jumping on the GameStop a bandwagon because basically it is the same thing. As I said on Monday, the fundamentals are lousy for GameStop. Anybody who knows the fundamentals, who understands the fundamentals, right, knows the stock is not worth, you know, $300 a share. It's probably not even worth $3 a share. That's why everybody was short. It's not an accident that all these smart people were short this stock, right? So the people who understand the business, who understand finance, know the stock's not worth anything. But you have an army of millennials on Robinhood who don't know anything about a balance sheet, don't know anything about business. They're just buying the stock because it's going up. They're just buying it despite the fact that it has no value. Well, that's exactly what's going on with Bitcoin. People are buying it that don't understand economics, that don't understand money. I understand those things. That's why I'm not buying it. Right? I'm in the same position as the people who are short a GameStop, except I'm not short Bitcoin, right? I, I never got in front of that freight train. I just don't own it because I understand it. It's the people who don't understand it that have been buying it. Just like the people who don't understand uh, GameStop have been buying that. Now, there are some people who don't understand it, but are buying it anyway because they know that it's going to go up and they think they can get out before the music stops. And maybe they will. And that's fine. That's a speculator trading the market. But you have a lot of people who are probably going to end up hodling uh, GameStop, and they're going to go down with the ship. And that's going to be the same thing with Bitcoin. And that's the point I want all the Bitcoin guys to understand who listen to my podcast. The only longs that are going to make money from this epic short squeeze in GameStop and any other company are the ones that sell. You have to sell to make money. And if you don't sell, if you ride it up and then ride it all the way back down, you didn't make anything. In fact, most people who don't sell are going to lose money because it's going to go much lower than their original entry price. So even if you bought the stock at 50 and now it's at 350 and you've got a $300 profit, if the stock crashes back down to five and you still own it, that profit meant nothing because you didn't take it. And the same thing is going to happen with Bitcoin, right? Because it's the same dynamics in play. It is a gigantic pump and dump only getting people to buy Bitcoin. And it's not taking advantage of the shorts, 
right? It's not a short squeeze, but it's taking advantage of people who don't understand uh, money, economics, and gold, but are willing to jump on the train just because it's moving. Remember, I said you got Michael Saylor was out there saying, hey, everybody, you know, you need to, all these corporations need to buy Bitcoin because, you know, it's better than gold and you need an inflation hedge so they should plug their balance sheets into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is up about 5% on the year, whereas GameStop is up better than 20x on the year, 20 times on the year. So by the definition that the Bitcoin guys like to use, GameStop is a much better store of value than Bitcoin. Well, if that's the case, then all these corporations should be plugging their balance sheets into GameStop, not Bitcoin. Of course, I pointed that out on Twitter. And, you know, I, I see, you know, some guy replies, well, if that's true, then uh, GameStop is also a better store of value than gold. And, you know, sometimes a lot of people don't get my, my sarcasm or my humor or what I'm trying to point out. It doesn't prove anything other than the fact that the people that are touting Bitcoin don't know what they're talking about. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't think that GameStop is a better store of value than Bitcoin. Neither of them are stores of value because neither of them have value. Gold actually has value. That's why it's not going ballistic uh, like GameStop is now or like Bitcoin was. That is the point that I'm trying to make. You can't simply say something is a store of value because the price is going way up and that corporations should use it as a proxy for cash just because the price is going up. Because if that's your logic, then you die by your own sword because now once you've accepted that logic, well then don't buy any Bitcoin, just put it all on GameStop because it has a much better appreciation. So therefore it's a better store of value. Of course it's not. But, you know, that's the logic of uh, Bitcoin. Audible has plenty of content to entertain, inspire, and inform. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. You know, you can even squeeze in a workout or a guided meditation without having to go to a gym or a class. There's a listen for every moment, every move. There is so much to discover with everything all in one place. Audible can truly become your playlist for life. And now Audible is giving members even more with the all new Plus Catalog. All members have access to the growing Plus Catalog with thousands of selected audiobooks and podcasts, Audible Originals, guided fitness and meditation programs, sleep tracks for better rest, and more, all included with your membership. But the best part is that my books are also there. And if you haven't read The Real Crash 
America's coming bankruptcy, how to save yourself and your country, you should start with that one. And if you don't have time to read it, you certainly have time to listen to it. You can listen to it in your car. You can listen to it while you're working out. Whenever you have the time, you can listen to that book. Because, you know, I think the book is actually more timely now than the day that I wrote it. Because obviously we're a lot closer to the real crash now than we were then. Clearly, I didn't necessarily know that. But with the benefit of the hindsight, we know it now. But the real crash that I wrote about is coming. It's closer than ever. And now is the time to listen to that book on Audible. So visit audible.com slash Peter or text Peter to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. And speaking of ridiculous Bitcoin logic, I guess the the trophy has got to go to Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital. Anthony, his company recently launched a crypto fund. I think they raised $300 million and put it into crypto, most of it probably in Bitcoin, not really sure uh, the makeup of the fund. I know they're trying to get more money all the time. One of my clients forwarded me a solicitation. He got an email from Scaramucci trying to get him to invest in this crypto fund. So they're really pushing this thing hard. And I read an interview yesterday with Scaramucci in which he specifically referenced the big run-up in GameStop stock and said, hey, look, this is proof that Bitcoin can work. And that shows you how little he actually understands Bitcoin because his example of why Bitcoin is going to work actually proves that it's going to fail because it's a fact that GameStop is going up despite the fact that it has lousy fundamentals. The market price is rising, even though the real value of the company may be zero because the company may be going bankrupt and it may never make a profit. So what his point is that, look, not making a profit isn't stopping GameStop from going up, right? It doesn't really have any value, but the price is going way up. So that proves Bitcoin can work because it proves that something with no value can go up. Well, it doesn't prove Bitcoin can work. It just validates the same dynamic as Bitcoin, that something with no value can go up as long as there's a supply of fools who don't know or don't care. But of course, what Scaramucci doesn't seem to understand is that GameStop will not go up forever. Crash is inevitable. The only question is when. So if you're going to base your outlook on Bitcoin on GameStop and say, hey, Bitcoin is just like GameStop. Well, then you're admitting that Bitcoin is going to collapse because it has to, because it has no actual value. It's not an investment. It doesn't pay interest. It doesn't pay dividends. It doesn't pay rents. It's not a commodity. You can't use it for anything. It is nothing. It is simply a digital token that is only useful if speculators want to buy it. And speculators only want to buy it if they think other buyers will buy it from them at a higher price, right? So by pointing out or trying to bring up GameStop as somehow validating uh, Bitcoin just is the ultimate in irony. And it just shows you how little these people know. I mean, I think Anthony Scaramucci may end up going down as one of the greatest, maybe the greatest institutional fool for arriving late to the party. I'm pretty sure they put that $300 million in when Bitcoin was, you know, closer to 40,000 than it is now. I mean, right now, Bitcoin 
is just above 30,000, around 31,000. It actually traded below 30,000 earlier in the day and managed to rally back uh, into the close. You know, the grayscale uh, Bitcoin trust on the lows this morning was almost down 10%. And I think it may have traded to a slight discount to NAV or pretty much flat. It paired its losses by the close with the Bitcoin rally. So it was only down about a half a percent uh, by the close. But the technicals are starting to deteriorate on Bitcoin. And the fact that Bitcoin is not going up with all these other uh, stocks uh, that are the heavily shorted stocks, maybe it also shows that the Bitcoin speculators are moving on to greener pastures. So they're no longer uh, in Bitcoin. They've moved on to something else. And that could also spell trouble for Bitcoin. But another thing I've noticed, too, about Anthony Scaramucci is he stopped following me on Twitter. He used to follow me. And I've spoken at maybe three or four of these uh, SALT conferences that he always had every year in Las Vegas. In fact, I think two years ago, I did a Bitcoin debate, gold Bitcoin debate, with Barry Seabird of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. In fact, you can see that. Uh, debate. It's on YouTube. It was a pretty good debate, so I would suggest uh, checking it out. I think it's on YouTube. If not, it's up on the Skybridge website, I think, unless they've taken it down. But since there's no longer an actual SALT conference, they've been doing these virtual talks. And I think it's very interesting that they haven't invited me to give a presentation. And in fact, if you go to their YouTube channel, the SALT channel, they have 11,400 subscribers. So not that many subscribers and you know they haven't been posting videos for that long, but I'm looking at their most recent videos and many, many of them, maybe even the majority, are with Bitcoin bulls. Now that's not a coincidence. They're trying to sell this Bitcoin fund. And so just about everybody they're interviewing is a bull on Bitcoin. Their most popular uh, interview was one with Chamath Palipataya, obviously a Bitcoin bull, that has 103,000 views. That's their number one video. Their number two video was just a couple months ago with Michael Saylor, 69,000 views. In fact, their fourth most popular video from a week ago is also with Michael Saylor. That has 61,000 views. Then they also have a popular video, I think number six or seven is with Rao Paul. Uh, he is also a big Bitcoin bull. Then it looks like here, yeah, the seventh most popular uh, interview from a month ago was with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, obviously, uh, the Winkle, you know, the Bitcoin bros, right? So you've got all these pro-Bitcoin people being invited to talk, yet they don't invite me to talk. Why? Because I'm not pro-Bitcoin. And I don't think they want any people who are not pro-Bitcoin at their conference because they want people sending money to their Bitcoin fund. And of course, not only do they want the money because they want to manage it, but you need more money. I mean, that is part of the dynamic of the Bitcoin pyramid scheme. New money is constantly needed to keep the price from collapsing or to make the price go up. So once you have a Bitcoin fund, you really have to pump it because you need more people to keep buying, not only so that you can manage more money, but to prevent the money you already have from collapsing. They have to keep the value of their cryptocurrency high. And the only way to do that is to get new buyers. So they don't want someone like Peter Schiff coming on uh, their conference 
and, and talking down their book. I mean, before they got involved in Bitcoin a couple of years ago, they had no problem uh, hosting a, a bull bear debate on Bitcoin and they had no problem inviting me. But now that they've taken a side, uh, they, you know, they, they don't want their investors to hear the other side because if they really wanted people to listen to their salt talks, they would clearly have me on. Look at my Money Show video that I published uh, on my own website, which was my Money Show video from a few weeks ago. It's got over 480,000 views in the past week, right? That's almost five times the number of views that Chamath got in the last seven months talking pro-Bitcoin. I got a lot more views talking anti-Bitcoin. So I can obviously bring a lot of uh, views to their website, but they're not interested in that. What they're worried about is if some people on their site hear my argument against Bitcoin, that they won't buy their fund. And so that would be working uh, against their real agenda. So I think that's why you're not going to see me uh, giving one of these salt talks anytime soon. But other than this uh, valuable lesson for the Bitcoin holders, which unfortunately most of them are too, uh, you know, blind to see, uh, despite my best efforts to point it out, the other warning sign that I think a lot of people are potentially missing is this is another a bell that they ring at the top that nobody hears. I mean, a lot of people have been saying, oh, you know, this isn't a bubble because we haven't seen any of the speculative activity, the craziness that we saw in 2000 with the dot-com bubble. Well, if that was your position, if that was why you thought it wasn't a bubble, well, then you can't think that anymore because clearly what we are seeing now eclipses anything that I recall from those days. I mean, there were some people, you know, in some of the AOL chat rooms back in what, 1999, 2000, that were buying crazy stocks that are no longer in business. And they were, you know, really fanatic about them. Companies that really had no good fundamentals, but they got popular. I think iOmega is one of the ones I can remember. I forget. There's a whole bunch of these things. I think CNBC came up with names with them. I think they called those guys the Iomagians or whatever. But there were, you know, groups of people that were buying these stocks. And yeah, for a while they looked smart until reality set in and the ones that didn't get out got wiped out. Um, but this is worse. I mean, this is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of ridiculous things during this bubble, including what's been going on with Bitcoin, which is simply part of this bubble. So on a more you know, big picture perspective, that's another aspect of what's happening right now that is very significant for the overall U.S. stock market. And I know people are saying, well, even if there is a bubble in these stocks, I mean, does that really mean that there's a bubble in the whole market? You know, this is just the most extreme example of what's going on. Right? Because when the dot-com bubble popped, a lot of people assumed that, well, that's okay. Those are just the internet stocks. But the entire NASDAQ was down 80%. And there were many stocks that were not dot-com stocks that had dramatic declines. So if you simply ignored the carnage in the dot-coms and said, oh, it's contained to dot-com, you were wrong. And again, the same thing with the subprime. When you had everybody saying, oh, don't worry about the mortgage market. It's contained to subprime. 
No, that was just a weak link of the chain. It was the tip of a huge iceberg. I was warning about it back then. The same thing is happening now. What you're seeing with these ridiculous moves in these stocks and all these people uh, in chat rooms and on Robinhood buying these stocks and thinking they're geniuses, this is the same type of sign. But it just epitomizes everything else that's wrong with this market and everything that's going on. And it is another warning sign that the game is about to stop. I want to move forward, though, and I want to talk about Jerome Powell and his press conference today. You know, they had their normal FOMC meeting. They released their official statement that accompanied the fact that they left interest rates unchanged at practically zero and indicated that that's where they're going to stay indefinitely. And if you look at the way they tweaked the official statement, it's pretty clear that the Fed, A, is far more worried about economic growth now than they were the last time they met. And they're even less worried about inflation because instead of saying that they're worried about inflation in the short run, now they're worried about it like in the long run. So it's not like a temporary. They, they think that this problem of low inflation is going to persist for a long time, that it's not a short-term thing, it's a long-term problem, which of course is ridiculous. But the mere fact that the Federal Reserve is downplaying the risks of inflation lets you know how much greater those risks are now looming because if the Fed isn't worried about inflation, that means it's going to get a lot worse, especially since what they are worried about is the economy and they think the way to stimulate the economy is by creating inflation. Now, they don't call it creating inflation. They just call it quantitative easing, but that's what it is. And they just keep looking at the CPI and they think that everything is fine because it's not rising at 2% per year. In fact, if you look at some of the things that Powell said during the Q&A portion of his press conference, he's basing his sanguine view on future inflation on the fact that inflation has been MIA in the past. He keeps pointing out the fact that, you know, we've gone so long without having any inflation that I don't even know why we're worried about it because we've kind of proved that it's not a threat, completely ignoring, A, the fact that the CPI really doesn't capture all that inflation and that a lot of it has been exported uh, to the rest of the world because of the dollar's reserve currency status and our massive trade deficits that have enabled this. But he also is not looking at the dramatic changes that have taken place recently, especially in the nature of the QE programs, because a lot more money now is being given directly to individuals, to consumers, to small business owners and individuals to spend. It's not just about goosing the stock markets anymore. It's not just about funneling money to Wall Street through the banks. Money is being sent. Checks are being put in the mail and sent directly to Americans who are non-productive. They're not making goods. They're not providing services. They're just cashing government checks and the money is coming from the Federal Reserve. So to ignore that significant change in the character of the policy and to just, you know, rest your hat on the fact that, well, we didn't have uh, any problems in the past, so we're not going to have any in the future without recognizing how much different things look now from the past and how much higher the risks have elevated. He's just oblivious to those inflation risks. And it's not just 
inflation risk that he's oblivious to. He was asked about the market. He was asked about you know what's going on with all these uh, shorted stocks, these spectacular rises. Is he concerned about any of this? And he basically said, no, he's not. And he was asked, you know, doesn't he think there's a connection between really low interest rates and the stock market and what's going on with, you know, with with stocks? And his answer was basically no. He tried to say that there's no connection or certainly downplayed the connection between interest rates and asset prices, which is completely asinine. I mean, how could you deny such an obvious connection? I mean, after all, the Fed's policy of QE, the initial policy, if you go back to Ben Bernanke, why did the Fed uh, slash interest rates and, and, and buy bonds? They did it to push up asset prices. That was the goal of the policy. So if low interest rates don't push up asset prices, then what was the point of lowering them? I mean, if you if the point was to raise asset prices, because that's what Bernanke said, but now Powell is saying there's no connection at all. Well, if there was no connection at all, then there would have been no reason to do the policy. Of course, there's a connection. That's why the Fed lowered interest rates to create a phony wealth effect. And it worked. The Fed achieved the exact result that they wanted in asset prices. They caused asset prices to rise. And now you have the current Fed chairman saying there's no connection uh, between the two, which is completely absurd. But then he kind of let the cat slip out of the bag because he said something to the effect, I don't remember the exact words. It was like, well, I mean, what do you expect us to do? Do you expect us to raise interest rates, right? Kind of saying, well, if there is a connection between asset prices and interest rates, and if we have a bubble, and if stock prices are too high as a result of our low interest rates, I mean, what do you think? What do you expect us to do about it? I mean, you don't expect us to raise rates, do you? Basically, that's what he's saying. He's throwing that back out at the reporters that why are you even asking me this question? Because what do you expect me to do about it? It's not like I can raise rates, which is kind of an admission that the Fed knows that there's a big connection between interest rates and asset prices, which is why it can't raise interest rates because it knows if it does raise interest rates, asset prices are going to crash. So what they have to do is pretend there's no connection at all, but because they know there's a connection, they can't raise rates. But the other reason they can't raise rates is because the government is broke and because corporations and individuals are levered to the max, just like the government. And because everybody has so much debt, nobody can afford higher interest rates. So even if the Fed thinks that there's a connection between low interest rates and a stock market bubble, it can't admit to the connection because then it has to do something about it. But because it can't do anything about it, it has to pretend that there's no connection. But all this should be obvious. These guys are just winging it. They're just saying whatever they have to say. Either they're lying or they're ignorant or a combination of both. They are just trying to keep the music playing. Powell was also asked specifically about the fiscal stimulus, you know, because he had encouraged Congress to pass fiscal stimulus in the past. And so reporters are asking him, you know, if he supports the, the current fiscal package, right? And it's the 1.9 trillion, whatever it is that's on the table now. And he didn't want to get into specifics, right? Because the, the Fed chairman rarely wants to piss off uh, any of the political parties. So it generally doesn't want to endorse 
one party's plan over another's. And so what Powell said is that, well, you know, we, we've got nothing to do with it, right? We, we, we're going to stay out of that. That's a legislative problem. That's up to Congress. So it's up to Congress to decide, you know, what kind of stimulus they want to pursue, what kind of fiscal policy, and we're not going to say anything, which of course makes no sense because what he's saying is, look, if, if Congress wants to do a bunch of dumb things and we know they're dumb, we're just going to keep our mouths shut because that's not our job. I mean, first of all, the only reason that Congress can do any fiscal policy, any expansionary deficit spending, is if the Fed monetizes it. The Fed is the key enabler. Without the Fed printing all the money, there's no fiscal stimulus. So you would think if you're funding the stimulus, then you have some say in what that stimulus is. How can you say, look, we're just going to give Congress a blank check to do whatever they want, but we're not going to have any input in what they do. I mean, clearly, if you do something like that, what do you expect that they're going to do, right? It's like if you're going to go out of town and you've got some teenage kids and you tell your teenage kids, hey, do whatever you want. I don't care. Here's my credit card. There's no limit on it. You know, (laughs) are you going to be surprised if while you're out of town, your kids have a massive party and they max out your credit card because you basically told them, you know, we're not, we're out of town. We're not going to call you and, and, and take this credit card. You know, that's what they're basically doing. They're abdicating any responsibility they have, but because they're giving Congress a blank check, they're actually responsible for all the damage that Congress does with this ill-advised and ill-conceived stimulus plan, which is actually a sedative, not a stimulus. He also talked about how closely he was going to work with the new Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who I think was approved overwhelmingly. I think there might have been a few people who voted against her. There were, but overwhelmingly people you know, wanted to support her as the first female Secretary of the Treasury. So that means that she's now going to be signing all the money that she used to be printing. So that'll be uh, interesting. Uh, but I don't like that. I don't like the fact that the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve are partners in crime, that they're working so closely together. They shouldn't be. That is that that is the problem. The Fed is supposed to be a check on the government. The Fed is supposed to take the, the punch bowl away from the not spike it, which is what Yellen wants to do. So of course now you've got the two of them working together. I don't see why people don't have a problem with this. Now obviously you know, if you're on Wall Street, yeah, you love this, right? Because you want inflation. You want low interest rates. You just want stock prices to go up. You don't give a damn about the real economy. You just want to make money. But if you care about the actual economy, if you care about the United States and the people of the United States and long-term prosperity, you do not want your central bank to be working hand in glove with your government. They are separate for a reason, and you need to maintain that separation. Unfortunately, they're they're independent in name only. The Federal Reserve, uh, despite the fact that they have to buy a stamp when they want to mail a letter, which shows you that they're an independent company, because when the IRS sends you a letter, uh, they don't have to buy a stamp. uh, But the Federal Reserve does, because they're not part of the government, but they are de facto a branch of the government, and that is the problem. But one political... Uh, arena that Powell wasn't shy about, uh, you know, throwing his hat in is the idea of systemic racism because he was asked by somebody, I don't remember who, you know, again, these are Zoom conferences, so everybody's in a little window, but somebody asked him if he thought systemic racism 
was a problem that the Fed should address? And his answer was yes. He basically agreed. He goes, yeah, systemic racism is a problem and the Fed should do something about it. Now, what they should do about it, he didn't actually say because I don't know what they could do about it. But Powell tried to blame all of the race-related economic disparities on systemic racism. He said, hey, the high unemployment among African-Americans is a problem. It's an economic problem. The fact that African-American households tend to have less wealth, right? That is a problem. And he went over a lot of the areas where African-Americans are lagging, let's say the overall population, and said those are problems. But then he implied that those problems are the result of systemic racism, which of course they're not. None of these problems have to do with systemic racism. They have to do with other factors that have nothing to do with racism. But a lot of these factors have to do with government, government laws, government regulations, government subsidies, which are actually going to get worse. So in the name of fighting a systemic racist threat that does not exist, the government will just enact more policies and more regulation that will actually exacerbate the very disparities that they think resulted from racism. But their own policies are going to exaggerate those disparities. And then what are they going to claim? Oh my God, racism is even worse now? We tried to fight racism and now we have more of it? Of course, they don't understand it's not racism that we have more of, but we have more of the problem that their own policies created. They just don't get it. They don't understand the connection between the problems they're trying to solve and the solutions that they're using to solve them because it's the very solutions that created them in the first place. And more of those same solutions aren't gonna cause the problem or cure the problem that their solutions caused. They're just gonna make it worse. And as I said earlier in this podcast, you know, based on how dovish Powell was in this conference, right? Not worried about inflation. The economy's in trouble. We have all this unemployment. We need more stimulus. We don't care about the stock market. We don't think there's a connection between low interest rates and a stock market bubble. You know, we just want bigger deficits. We want more stimulus. We're going to keep rates at zero. This is the most dovish talk I've ever heard. The dollar should be getting killed. Instead, the dollar was up. I mean, it wasn't up you know, on the press conference, it was up earlier in the day and, you know, it didn't really lose much value as a result of this conference. And gold, gold did nothing. I mean, gold was down before Powell spoke and it did pair its losses a little bit um, during the conference, but not much. In fact, it never got to positive. I think the, the highest I saw gold was maybe down two bucks or something like that. And then it turned down and it closed down about $6 on the day. But if anybody understood the significance of this conference and how completely clueless Powell is to the true nature of these problems and the monetary crisis that we're headed towards, gold would have been at a record high today. I mean, gold should be up hundreds of dollars an ounce today. I mean, it, it probably it should already be higher, but if it wasn't, Based on this, people should have been buying gold and silver with both hands. Instead, they ignored it. In fact, the only thing that seemed to go up during the Powell conference was Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin was down on the day, and but it was way off the lows. And I watched Bitcoin among other assets, and it was really the only asset that rose 
during the Powell press conference. And it's ironic because, yes, it seems like the Bitcoin buyers, some of these people get it, at least with respect to Powell's dovishness. They understand that this is very bullish for inflation hedges, that he's talking about massive money printing, massive inflation, dollar crisis. They get it. The problem is they just don't get what to do about it. They're right on the inflation and the reckless monetary policy. They're just wrong to be buying Bitcoin as a hedge. It's not a hedge. Right? It's no more viable probably than, than, than GameStop, but they just don't know it. They're buying this. Uh, they should be buying gold, but nobody else uh, could connect the dots. Now, maybe we'll get a delayed reaction. Maybe we'll see some buying coming into the gold and silver market uh, tomorrow. I don't know. But, you know, one more analogy that I want to draw with GameStop, and again, not just GameStop, but all of these heavily shorted stocks that are rising on a short squeeze is that if you think this short squeeze is epic, and it is, but if you think this is something, where do you see what's going to happen when we have the mother of all short squeezes in gold and silver? Because we have big institutional shorts in these metals. We have a lot of people, and I've talked about that on this podcast for many years, we have a lot of people who have shorted gold in the futures market. You know, a lot of people were talking about how, you know, there was like 140% of the uh, GameStop float was short, right? And it's, oh my God, there's so much stock that's short. That pales in comparison to how much gold is short that doesn't actually exist, right? You have all these people who have shorted gold, who have committed to selling gold, delivering gold into the future that they do not have, right? There is no limit. GameStop can issue new shares whenever it wants, right? So they they can feed demand uh, by creating shares. And if they were smart, they would be doing offerings right now, just that this whole thing exploded so quickly. Maybe they haven't had time yet to put it together. I'm not sure how many shares the insiders have dumped, uh, but they can certainly sell more stock. You can't do that with gold and silver. If there is a short squeeze on the COMEX and the people who are short gold and silver futures contracts are forced by their counterparties to deliver the bullion, it's not there. It does not exist. They can't buy it. That is the problem. Now, obviously, there's gold out there somewhere. They're just going to have to convince people to sell it. And now it's going to take a lot of money to get my gold, right? But that's what's going to have to happen because it's just not readily available on the market because there's so much that's short relative to what's actually used. So the price of gold and silver is going to have to skyrocket. So you can see it happening with these stocks, right? These big moves doubling in one day. The same thing can happen to silver. It could double in one day too. If people have to actually buy the actual metal and now they're going to pay whatever price they have to to get that metal, right? That's what's happening with the short squeeze. People are saying, you got to buy that stock back, even though you know it's worthless, you got a margin call. And if you can't meet that margin call, then you got to buy back that stock. And it doesn't matter what the float is or how ridiculous the price is. You just got to pay whatever the market will bear. And it's just, those are just the circumstances. So the same thing could happen with gold and silver, only the supply could be even more constrained. And there is no way for anybody to do anything about it. Because as I said, a company can always issue more stock. You just can't get more gold out of the ground. 
It takes a long time to do that, and it costs a lot of money. So if you're in a hurry, if you've got to you know, meet your margin call and you've got to settle up and you've got to come up with actual gold or silver to deliver into a contract, and you just got to go find it. You got to convince people, look, it's happening all the time. There's, the real estate has gone crazy here in, uh, in Puerto Rico. And every week, you know, I get emails or phone calls from real estate agents, you know, wanting me to sell my property. Usually it's on the condo, but you know, what, would you sell your condo for this price? You know, would you sell your house? My house isn't for sale. My condo is not for sale, but people want to live in this community. And so they have to call up people that own property and see if they'll sell and just offer them above the market just on the chance that they'll decide to sell an asset that's really not for sale. Now, of course, anything's for sale at the right price. So if somebody makes me an offer I can't refuse, then I might have to sell. But that's gonna be the same thing when it comes to gold and silver, right? There are a lot of people that have gold and silver. They've been holding on to it for years and they're not anxious to sell. But if somebody needs it because they're on the hook for a contract and they have to deliver, they're going to have to start bidding the price higher and higher and higher until they finally make some dyed-in-the-wool gold bug an offer he can't refuse. And believe me, that's going to be a very, very high price. So before that happens, before we get the mother of all short squeezes in gold and silver, get yours now. Load up, buy gold and silver, contact my reps at shiftgold.com. And also, when this happens, you know what's going to be happening to the dollar. Gold going way up means the dollar is going to be tanking. You want to make sure you don't own any dollars. You want to avoid this massive inflation tax. In fact, we've just finished a brand new special report, Tax by Inflation. You will be able to download it shortly, so look out for it. We'll have it up on our website. It's going to be attached to a special commentary that we are going to be uh, uh, coming out with in the next few days uh, from Europe Pacific Capital. So we'll have a link to that special report, but make sure and download that report, read it, share it with your friends, and then take action. The inflation tax is going to clobber everybody who hasn't taken the appropriate steps to avoid it. That is the only thing good about the inflation tax. It can be avoided. A lot of other taxes you can't avoid. You got no choice but to pay them. But the inflation tax is a tax on dollars and dollar denominated assets. So you avoid the tax by divesting yourself of what's being taxed. And you store your wealth in assets that are not being taxed. And we have entire portfolios that we're putting together. We're managing accounts for our clients where you can avoid that inflation tax and actually profit uh, from that tax and see significant gains as other Americans are suffering real losses. (music) 